everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Wisdom Words Podcast, where every week we talk to folks who have stories, advice, and life hacks, all of which take you one step closer to that feeling of hope. I'm your co-host, Neil Trevetti. And I'm your co-host, Reno Day. And we are so privileged today to be joined by a guest who has so many uh, titles and credits and, and, uh, and all kinds of stuff that it's going to be hard. I'll say psychologist Jenny Hughes, and then uh, I'll let you take it from there. But first, hi, Jenny. Welcome to our show. Hi. Thank you guys hi, so Jenny. much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah. Our yeah, topic why don't today. You, why don't we uh, start? Yeah, it's PTSD. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why exactly mm -hmm. you do what you do? What got you started? What got you so passionate uh, about uh, what you do now? Yeah, so I'm a trauma psychologist, like you said. And, you know, um, whenever people ask me what got me into this, the honest answer is me search. I mean, I think a lot of people go into psychology to understand themselves better. I did not uh, initially intend to go into trauma per se. I thought I was going to work with um, adolescent kids dealing with drug abuse because I was like, well, I know that stuff. Um, but, you know, substance <laughs> use and trauma often go hand mm -hmm. in hand. And a mm -hmm. lot of my really yeah. early clinical experiences were with kids in foster care and oh, both clinically and in research. And so then mm -hmm. I just naturally, well, two things. One, I found I really loved working with that population and it was more healthy for me not to do the substance use stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And <laughs> so I pursued working with children and families affected by child abuse and neglect. And that was, I was initially trained as a child psychologist doing trauma work, um, actually with babies all the way down to zero, age zero. Um, and my career has taken me a lot of different places. And now I primarily work with adults clinically who have experienced trauma and PTSD. And then I also work with fellow trauma therapists and I help them manage what it's like to do this work and manage vicarious trauma, compassion, fatigue, burnout, things like that. Yeah, Fantastic. we are definitely going to get to that part, like towards the mm -hmm. end, because I do want to, because we, and that's so refreshing to hear when that there are platforms out there for people who give therapy, because everybody, even therapists need therapy, right? That this is something mm -hmm. we stress, Rini and I, on practically every episode that, you know, we're all human and all psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, even they're human. Trauma is the new buzz, buzzword in mental health. How, I mean, what did they describe it as before trauma? I mean, I, as a child, I didn't hear trauma, maybe traumatized, but which is yeah, kind of the so same, but previously it was really, um, it was really just talking about like military trauma. Right. So early, mm -hmm. early, early days, it was like shell shock. Right. Like that was, that was all we talked about. And then mm -hmm. even still now with some of the folks that I work with, some of my clients, they'll come in and say, well, I didn't, I haven't been to war. I haven't experienced trauma. So there still is a lot of growth, I think, to happen for folks to really understand that trauma, trauma is, it's not even really what the experience is. It's the person's, it's their perception of it and how they mm -hmm whether or not they felt safe or protected or in control or afterwards, especially if they had those supports. 
Um, but really it was just about military stuff for a really long time. And that left out so many experiences that are truly traumatic for people. And I'm so grateful that there's such a larger understanding of that, but now it can almost be, my colleague calls it the trauma Olympics where people are like, they still mm -hmm. say, well, my trauma is not bad enough. Right? Like I don't get a gold medal in trauma. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, trauma, it is a buzzword, but I'm glad for that because I want mm -hmm. people to understand Absolutely. that stress, trauma, it all exists on a continuum and it's all valid. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. I was 10 when my brother came back from Vietnam. And I, I mean, I saw, you know, and I heard things, but I was too young to understand how traumatized he was. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, let's that's a get story into for that. another a day. Big part of, yeah, the trauma, you know, is another buzzword, as we say, or as it should be, like you said, uh, is PTSD. And there's so many layers, and every single day we're finding out new things and we hear new terms, like, or new tags attached to it. Like now there's complex PTSD also, which I hope to get into in a bit with you as well. But yeah, can you explain for the layman? We obviously know we've heard the medical term of PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. Can you explain in layman's terms what exactly is PTSD? Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, Neil, that, that PTSD, it is the medical term that we have. And so there's a very specific set of criteria that have to be met in order to be diagnosed with PTSD. The first, and this is actually the one that I take most issue with, is there has to be, we call it a criterion A event. So um, a criterion A event, there's like criterions A, B, C, D, E. And a criterion A event, it's like a really bad trauma, right? It's like something that happens that I think mo very few people would argue that it is traumatic. So, you know, you're attacked, sexual assault, being exposed to military violence, um, a really bad car crash, like something where there, you're afraid for your life, you're afraid for your safety, and you actually fear that you might die. Um, so that's a criterion A event. And, and another term that we use for that is like big T trauma. Um, but wow. it's, I take issue with this because there's a lot of little T traumas that we can talk about as well that happen over the course of any day for someone that also matter but we'll put that to the side for a second. So criterion A, big T trauma, if that doesn't happen, technically you're not gonna meet diagnosis criteria. So let's just say that happens, right? Like I'm in a really bad car accident. Um, then we want to look and we want to see, are there intrusive symptoms? Do you find that you can't stop thinking about the accident, right? You keep like having images of it um, and, and it's just like coming nightmares, things like that. There also is, on the flip side of intrusive, avoidant. So trying to avoid things that remind you of it. Yeah. So not wanting to get in a car, not wanting to like walk on a busy street, avoiding things that remind you of the accident. There also, another part of the criterion is hypervigilance. So feeling on guard. So like every time I get into a car, I'm like totally terrified and just like am white knuckling through it or I make the person stop driving and I get out of the car. And then that relates to, and, and with the hypervigilance too, it's the, the fear and the belief that it's going to happen again. So you're trying to kind of protect yourself from it happening again. 
And then there's the hyper arousal, which is like all the stuff that's going on in my body when I'm being triggered, when I'm being reminded of the trauma. So I'm tensing up, I'm sweating, I'm feeling super afraid. And then the last one is called negative, negative cognitions. And this was added when the, the DSM, our like diagnostic Bible was updated about 10 years ago to the DSM five. And it reflects how trauma affects our mood and our beliefs about others, ourselves and the world. So PTSD and depression can often happen at the same time, but PTSD without depression also can have these changes in mood where you're feeling down. You have these beliefs like the world is, is totally dangerous. I can't trust anyone. Or maybe you're blaming yourself for the trauma. So that, that capturing the mood and the change in the beliefs was really, really important in the update to the DSM because it is a, a critical part of PTSD is how it changes the way that we view the world. And then the last thing is these symptoms have to... Um, persist for at least 30 days. So, so let's say I had the car accident yesterday. I actually couldn't be diagnosed until 30 days from today. And then the symptoms have to continue persisting. So we have this window of like a month. There's research behind it, but I think it's kind of like, you just got to pick a number at some point, but we're that, that 30 days is acknowledging that a lot of folks actually do recover naturally from traumatic events. Our brain is very resilient. And that's why trauma is in the eye of the beholder. And it's all about perception because although a car accident yesterday could have been traumatizing for me, maybe for you, Rainy, it wasn't, right? Because you had different experience of it or different supports. And so we have this 30-day kind of grace period to see, okay, is there some natural recovery that's going on or is this persisting and really disturbing someone's life? Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> that's a lot. That's a great answer. answer. No, no, I, I was just curious answer. to know how did they reach, like you, you said, sometimes it can be subjective. Like, how did they reach that 30 day mark? Was it because that was the most common number they found in research or how did they arrive that, okay, that's like the magical number, at least in the majority of the cases? It does come from the research base um, of seeing that there's a big chunk of people that like within those 30 days after a traumatic event do experience that natural recovery. A lot of people in their clinical practice, though, will wait about three months until diagnosing PTSD. So that there's a difference between like, you know, kind of the rigid research and all of that versus clinical practice, where some people will give a little bit more of a window there before actually diagnosing PTSD. What are, okay, I have two questions. I don't know which one to ask first. I think I'll ask, I know, yeah, I know that this is a, not a simple answer, but how long does it last? I mean, it's individual for each client. Okay, so what are the ways that you would treat it. Would you take someone out and put them in the car and say, you know, let's just drive around the block. 
It depends. So when we look at our evidence-based treatments for PTSD, one of them is called prolonged exposure therapy, which that's part of what you do. They're called in vivo Mm -hmm. exposures. And I have done that with people specifically with car crashes. That's actually can be really helpful. So as long as the person can, can confront that thing that they're avoiding in a way that is safe, objectively safe, we all agree that there's dangers to driving, right? But objectively safe ways, it can be very helpful, but the, sometimes it can be too much and the person can feel flooded. And so there's other, there's also like EMDR, right? Where it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing Mm -hmm. where we're working with the memories Mm -hmm. and the physical sensations, emotions, and beliefs. Um, I think in a, a bit more of a gentle and more holistic way, There's also like cognitive processing therapy. So it's really focusing more on the way that the trauma has changed your beliefs so that as you are beginning to integrate new information into those trauma-related beliefs, you can start to actually view things differently in the world and and experience things differently. So those are kind of the top three evidence-based treatments for adults. Um, And which one is used is really dependent on the person and what's bothering them most since the trauma and what are kind of their strengths and, and weaknesses and how can we meet that person's needs, acknowledging all of their u- uniqueness. Yeah. yeah. Is it harder to do Great. with children? Uh, n- not necessarily. So TFCBT, <laughs> trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, is the number one evidence-based treatment for kids. Um, and technically, you can go down to age three for TFCBT, but I think it's better starting around age five and then up until kind of like You can go up to like 18, but I think usually around like 16, I might consider switching to like CPT or EMDR or something. You can use EMDR with kids too, actually. Um, And then for even little itty bitties, like I said, I worked with babies after trauma and there's child parent psychotherapy, which is a relational uh, treatment for very young children and their parents. The key, regardless of the kid's age though, is that um, involvement and support of the parent, caregiver, some other supportive adult in their life? Because I only get them for 50 minutes a week, right? They're with these other people all the other minutes of the week. And so if they don't have um, a relationship or people that are supportive of the work that they're doing, it can be much more difficult. Right. You, yeah. you, talk, about, you talk about children and babies. How does a baby suffer um, PTSD? So a lot of times, especially for babies, it's that they are present when their parent or caregiver is suffering trauma. So perhaps one of their parents or caregivers is in, a, is in an abusive relationship, right? And the baby is present for that or for um, substance use or abuse. There are also people that abuse babies. Um, and sadly, uh-huh. I've, I've had to work with uh-huh. kids with babies who have uh-huh. suffered that. And um, so it it's a really difficult reality to kind of wrap our minds around and accept, but it happens. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. And babies, you know, they're not verbal yet. So they Mm -hmm. are expressing it in their bodies, right? One of my, this didn't Mm -hmm. happen to me, but one of my supervisors in infant mental health described working with this baby who was like three to six months old and her parents were in an abusive relationship and the mom was being abused by the dad. And my supervisor would watch this baby just have these really like intense startle responses at the beginning of work. Anytime the dad would come into the session and through the work that they did, because the parents stayed together and they were working on it, she could see this baby was, was able to regulate, was not scared, was not having these really strong reactions. So they just express it differently. Well, um, you know, I believe we're all energy. So do you think the baby was feeling the mother's energy? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the dad's energy probably too. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're we're equal parts of them. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. And it seems it's it's strange, right? So much of this is, like you said, individualized, right? Depends on the person, depends on what they're going through. So PTSD in and of itself seems so complex. And yet now we hear the term complex PTSD, which is a separate term at least it's uh, categorized separately so get into what makes pt what makes complex ptsd complex because it seems like it was complex enough already <laughs> it was already <laughs> complicated <laughs> um so complex ptsd it, it actually is a diagnosis that's recognized by the icd the international classification system um but what it is communicating is someone who has experienced multiple different types of trauma throughout their life, especially starting in childhood. And typically um, it starts with a lot of child, childhood abuse and neglect. Um, and so they're not getting their emotional and their relational and physical needs met for whatever reason. And so their little brains figure out how to survive that, right? They figure out how to get through each day because they have to, but those survival skills don't really work as well. Once you have to like live independently and like be in the adult world. And so they can cause a lot of problems in people's relationships in particular, but also like in employment, right? Or they can become really avoidant of things. And so that complex PTSD piece is acknowledging how impactful those early experiences are on us and the way that it can shape the rest of our lives. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with complex PTSD, something that I think is important is often people can be misdiagnosed with borderline personality disorder when really it's complex PTSD. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What what, what are the myths you mentioned that the borderline personality, are there other, what are some of the most common misconceptions that people, maybe they confuse it with PTSD? So ADHD is actually another one. So, so whether in kids or adults, because with trauma, um, your, your prefrontal cortex is not working. So um, when you are under threat, your, we call it your lid flips. So if you imagine that my hand was the brain, this is your prefrontal cortex and it goes offline when you're under threat because it really needs your brainstem and your limbic system to take over, to go into fight, flight, freeze. 
And when you're having trauma happen over and over again, your lid's always flipping, your, your, your cortex is going offline. So it's really hard to pay attention, to follow through with things, to organize, plan, execute that stuff. And so, especially in kids, but we're understanding more in adults now too, that it can be hard to tease apart ADHD and PTSD. And a lot of times ADHD is misdiagnosed when it is an underlying trauma. Um, bipolar can also fall into this where, um, you know, people are misdiagnosing bipolar. Again, it happens a lot in kids because kids will act out. They'll be, they'll become aggressive adults too. That's a survival response. That's the fight part of it. And then it'll be misdiagnosed as like a manic episode or something. Um, But those, those are some of the big ones that are most common. OCD and eating disorders are also really related to trauma sometimes too, though, because we feel so powerless after experiencing trauma that we can overcompensate for that in different ways. Well, you talk about the frontal cortex and, um, how do you rewire that to get out of the constant flight or fight? Yeah. So, and that's a big, that, that concept of rewiring is a big part of trauma work. So let's just take EMDR, for example. So in EMDR, what we're doing is we're kind of turning on or accessing the network in our brain that's connected to, to a trauma. And you can use EMDR for, for lots of different memories, but let's just focus. We're pretending we'll go back to my car accident, my, my fake car accident. <laughs> Fortunately, it's fake. <laughs> so <laughs> let's say I'm, I'm working on this car accident memory in EMDR. Well, I'm going to turn on that network so that my brain is aware of the images that are coming up, the negative beliefs that are coming up, like I'm never going to be safe in a car again, but also um, positive or adaptive parts of the brain. So there's the trauma network and then there's the adaptive Mm -hmm. network that is there in the brain. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to really connect those two to do that rewiring in the present moment. In the present moment where you are objectively safe and your brain can say, all right, this really shitty thing happened. And Mm -hmm. I also know these helpful things about myself, others, or the world. And over time, those networks get strengthened so that the trauma one isn't the loudest voice in the room anymore. I want to get back to the babies for a minute. Yeah. And, you know, them experiencing trauma, like through their life. Can you correlate love and, 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 you know, the feeling of trauma? Do they, can a child not feel like they're loved? Yeah, and and so neglect and emotional neglect is actually um, can be even more uh, painful or even have even worse consequences than physical or sexual abuse. So Bruce Perry wrote a really great book about this called "The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog." And I actually did my dissertation about child neglect. Um, it's oh, not, wow. it, child neglect doesn't get a lot of, you know, airtime because mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. they're showing a picture of like a dirty kid who's starving, there's not a whole lot of images that can really portray what it's like to experience that emotional neglect. And when you don't experience love, especially mm-hmm. in those first zero to three or five years of life, mm-hmm. then you don't internalize 
your worth. You don't internalize the fact that people are going to show up for you and you can respond with a lot of aggression, really dangerous behaviors. Um, emotional neglect is linked to really, really dangerous stuff in adulthood. So not just like, oh, I'm, I'm drinking too much, but like serial killers and like stuff like that, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. They, I'm not trying to like, yeah. you know, no, that's why I asked. Yeah. Yeah. So can someone, can someone, you know, for the first five years, not experience love, get into therapy and then start feeling it and maybe not be so traumatized? So the short answer is yes. And of course, there's lots of caveats to that, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. beginning to experience those things later in life requires Mm -hmm. even more consistency of experiencing that and having people really actively show up for you, which some people Mm -hmm. are capable to do for others, right? But I also say yes so quickly because trauma is something that's really highly treatable. That's something that that keeps me in this work and why I love doing it because we do have. Okay. What's your phone number? I'm calling you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We all have it. We do. And we have, we have really effective ways to help people. And I see Mm -hmm. people get better. I was in a a car accident at 18. I was uh, hit by a drunk driver. My mother was driving. My back was to the door. He hit me. I never, I was in the hospital a month, but I didn't feel like I couldn't drive or something like that, which is incredible. Because after you're talking about that, it was like, why didn't I feel that? I'm telling you, it was my mother. Yeah. Yeah. So those experiences right after the trauma are incredibly important. So I, Mm -hmm. um, I lived in New Orleans for about five years and I never had anything like bad happen. Um, like New Orleans, there's a lot of, it can be very dangerous. (laughs) And it was like just literally a few weeks before I was moving to Houston where I live now. And my friend and I were walking back from a wine bar and we got held up at gunpoint and robbed and nothing like that had ever happened. Right. And like gun to my friend's head. And we got back to my house and like all my neighbors were there they were all supportive they let us talk about it they called the cops because we were like they can't do anything but like i had this amazing response and i don't i go back to new orleans all the time i love new orleans but i don't walk around being like oh i'm gonna get robbed you know because i had that supportive response just like your mom gave to you after the car accident you felt safe and understood and that is a huge part of that natural recovery from ptsd that I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You, you talk about can, even if somebody, let's say, can't officially be diagnosed with PTSD, if they didn't go through, like you said, an overt event, which is obvious, right? Can a loved one or a close friend's PTSD symptoms rub off on like someone like, for example, if, if your partner or your best friend went through something, say, just as an example, like you said, Rob, can that rub off and say, now I'm getting anxious. Now that's affecting me because my partner is so anxious about it. Does that happen often? Totally. And the term for it is secondary traumatic stress. And ah. it's literally- I have secondary and 
embarrassment. Yeah. I cannot watch those reality shows because I get embarrassed for the people on them. Right. <laughs> well, and it's just our natural human nature, right? Of like, especially people who are who are empathic, you're gonna soak that stuff up. And with secondary yeah. traumatic stress, it especially happens when a loved one goes through something traumatic and we are kind of there to help support them through it. But just learning about it can be really stressful. It also, we started to see a lot of research about secondary traumatic stress after things like 9-11, where people yeah. were watching yeah. the towers fall over and over again. And the DSM actually specifically says that PTSD can't be diagnosed for like seeing things on news or the media, but um, because they wanted to like differentiate it from secondary traumatic stress, but that's another way mm -hmm. it can happen. And just like we were talking mm -hmm. about with kids, that's a, that actually can be diagnosed as PTSD in kids is them learning oh, about okay. or seeing a parent or caregiver go through something traumatic or be hurt. That does count as PTSD for a kid because their parent is their key to survival, right? Their caregiver is their key to survival. So you, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but I, I, I was hoping for a couple more examples of the prolonged exposure therapy, because that's something that I've been like ever since I was doing my research on you, that's when I first started. But then when I started Googling it, because it just sounded like fascinating and I was like, wait, this is worth learning about and all that. So can you go a little bit more detail into what exactly that is and examples of how that's applied? Yeah, so prolonged exposure therapy, or PE, um, with PE, it really does need to be like a criterion A trauma based on the research because you need to have a clear memory of the traumatic event. Um, so it's not good for like little t traumas or kind of more complex trauma where there's not a specific event that stands out. But with PE, there's two components to it, there, which are both types of exposures. And there's, there's the, um, the imaginal exposure, which is where in session with the therapist, the client is going through the memory of the trauma over and over and over again. And the goal there is to help the brain and body essentially get used to the memory um, with any trauma work, we're never erasing the memory. That's just not possible. Yeah. But we're helping the brain and body to learn that in this current moment, it's not happening. And so the distress that we feel can start to decrease as we're reminded about it and won't last as long. And so you do these imaginal exposures in session. The client has their eyes closed. They tell you the story literally over and over again in any given session. Um, and they record themselves and they listen to that in between sessions. So you want them to have as much exposure to this memory as possible. And then they're also doing what we talked about earlier, the in vivo exposures. And so you come up with a hierarchy of things that they avoid because of the trauma. And you start with the easier things, right? So you rate each of these from zero to a hundred in terms of like how distressing they are. You want to start with things that are like, 30 to 50 in terms of the level of distress. 
and start doing those things every single day until that level of distress decreases to a manageable or zero place. And so the combination of the in-session imaginal work and the out-of-session in vivo um, can be a really like complete package of helping someone in kind of more of a behavioral way overcome the effects of traumatic experiences. Yeah, because you okay. can't you it's like you mentioned right earlier on, like, as you were explaining, you can't erase something because it's there and erasing it would mean not accepting as, it as reality, which you can't do because it is real. And no matter how much it hurts and how much it scares us and traumatizes us, right, it's real and we have yeah. to accept that, right? Yeah, and it's part of us and every part of us is valid, right? And and if you look at it from like an, an internal family systems perspective, there's no bad parts. Even the parts that maybe, you know, we don't like or that get us in trouble, they still serve a purpose. And if we try and, and relegate them to the dungeon, it's going to actually cause even more problems. So that's why we approach yeah. trauma in this work as opposed to continuing to avoid it. Um, ketamine treatment mm -hmm. and... Um, What's the other one where you take the mushrooms and mm -hmm. and it helps you, supposedly, whatever. Um, you know, what do you think of those as treatment? So I don't personally practice that, but I have colleagues who do. So psychedelic assisted, uh, psychotherapy. Psychedelic, thank you. Work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so the research is kind of... Um, I, I, the research, the quality of the research in this area really isn't that great, but anecdotally, it, um, I, I actually believe that evidence a little bit more is that it's really helpful. So one thing that we seem to understand from the psychedelic approaches is that it's decreasing those defenses and those inhibitions. So all that energy mm -hmm. that we spend avoiding stuff and trying to block it out, mm -hmm. it helps to kind of bring those walls down so that we can mm -hmm. both access the trauma, but also access that adaptive material that connect those two things. Um, ultimately, that's what any kind of trauma treatment is doing. It's acknowledging the trauma and connecting it with the adaptive, the helpful stuff. And so what, what we think is kind of happening with the psychedelic assisted approaches is it's just making it a little bit easier to do that because the brain is just more open and, and not as locked down. You, it basically, it's like just more of a relaxation kind of a thing, right? It's, if you're more relaxed, then you're maybe more prone to being communicate more freely about something or be more open to other treatments and things like that. Yeah. Yep. That's a really good way well, to put it. Yeah. Well, um, also, I just did some research for a friend on shock therapy. And the University of Maryland is like, they're doing trials and they're doing you know, all this kind of stuff on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's coming back because it's not like the old days where they put, you know, the things on the people's head and had, you know, a tongue holder and all that. Tie you up like, like an this. animal. Yeah, it's not <laughs> right. like that anymore. It's supposed to rewire your brain, right? Yeah, so ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is actually really widely used for treatment-resistant depression. 
Um, I'm not familiar with them using it for PTSD, but if, if that's kind of what you're talking about, I'm definitely going to look into that there. And, it, and you're right. It's not, it's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You actually are a nest. <laughs> like you, they use yeah. anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and it's, it's not like painful, you know, Um, There also is transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, which is um, more widely used for depression. Again, there's like FDA approvals for that, but there's studies looking at TMS for PTSD too. And TMS is something you just go into the clinic and they like, I don't know, they just like... Mm -hmm hit your mm-hmm. head with it. <laughs> I don't really know how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you yeah, don't have to be yeah. anesthetized. You just well, like go in and leave, yeah. you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> well, does that last very long though? The TMS? Yeah. I have a friend who has a daughter who's been to it like six times. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the person, just like with anything in psychology mm-hmm. and psychiatry. So I've worked with mm-hmm. folks who, who've done it specifically for depression that have only had to do one round. I know other folks who've had to do multiple rounds of TMS. But if you think about kind of like the order of operations, usually it's like therapy and meds, TMS, and then ECT, because ECT is the okay. most like invasive. Okay. Okay. And that's a perfect segue. We talked about the clinical treatments and everything you just mm-hmm. mentioned. How about day-to-day stuff? Let's say someone with PTSD has started on the right path. They're in therapy. They're with a qualified professional, maybe taking medication and whatnot. What are some things they can do day-to-day basis just to help be more in control of themselves? Is it you know breathing exercises, meditation, or you know, vitamins, natural supplements, what are some things they can do? So definitely things like breathing exercises, meditation, and mindfulness, a big component of really any, any approach to treating trauma is going to be first teaching those skills to help with the regulation, um, to help someone learn how to regulate their brain and body when they're triggered, both in and outside of session. And so practicing those things is super important practicing them when you're calm so that they will actually work when you are feeling triggered. Um, just like when we learn anything new, like we have to learn how do we have to practice an instrument before we're going to go perform it. Right. And then also like really like doing whatever homework your therapist is giving you. So I, with any kind of overcoming anything in life, I think it takes a concerted effort. Um, it's easy to kind of do the, like, I'm just going to like have a glass of wine or whatever, because that's an easy out. It takes a lot more work to do the things that are healthier for us. Like go drink your glass of wine. I'm not judging that, but let's acknowledge that there are healthier and unhealth and, and unhealthier ways to deal with stuff. And I often liken it to like choosing to become a vegetarian, not because you have like some dietary issue, Mm -hmm. but you're choosing to become a vegetarian. You're choosing to do trauma work. When you choose to become a vegetarian, you have to recommit to that every day. You have to read labels. You have to ask questions like, oh, is the broth in this soup chicken or is it vegetable based? Right. So same, you have to like keep doing that every day because you're making the choice to only eat plants. And so same goes for trauma work or overcoming anxiety, depression, whatever it might be. Like you got to work at that stuff every day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, 
and you can look at it as like, oh, that sucks. And especially with trauma, like I didn't ask for that. Yeah, it's true. Um, but it also can be really freeing because once you do really strengthen these adaptive networks, it gets easier. Certainly we still have to make conscious choices, but it does get easier. And our brain and body start to crave the things like, you know, the breathing, the mindfulness, whatever other things you learn with your therapist. Yeah. Do you think part of that is also the influence of in this day and age, everybody seems to want a quick fix to everything, which doesn't exist for things like mental health, right? There are no quick fixes, but yet people say, I'll try this and you'll be, it'll be a miracle and all that. And we get so bogged down things we see on social media that it's like, we want to create this dream world of, Oh, one foot in and I'll be fine. I just have to knock on this door and get into this fantasy world and I'll be free of all my problems. And unfortunately that's not how real life works. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's so many unrealistic expectations that we look at on our screens every day. Um, and, and when you use a variety of things in a constellation, that combination can and will give you relief and healing. So maybe it is using, you know, part of that thing that you saw on social media advertises the quick fix for PTSD and going to therapy and doing the work that your therapist wants you to do, right? <laughs> so as we wind things down here, uh, Tufa, uh, we touched on this in the beginning, and I'm so interested in knowing you are affiliated with an organization that not just helps clients, but making things easier for other therapists, which I think is so needed, and, and I'm so glad that you're a part of that and you, you have a hand in that. So tell us about that. What is that organization? What exactly does it do for therapists and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, so it's a company that I started called Brave Providers, and um, Brave is an acronym that stands for Building Resilience Against Vicarious Exposure, but no one needs to remember that. Um, but Brave, <laughs> um, the first thing that I'm focusing on, the first group I'm focusing on is other trauma therapists. Um, my goal is to be able to have offers for all types of helpers and healers. And I've done a lot of work um, in supporting healthcare providers in dealing with things like vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, and burnout. But I wanted to start by, by really focusing in on trauma therapists because there's not a whole lot of supports out there for trauma therapists. They're usually the ones that are helping other people and other helpers and healers. And there are also a lot of messages. It's not unique to trauma therapists. It's common amongst helpers and healers, but of like, oh, I shouldn't need to have help. I should be able to do this. If I'm bothered by my work, I'm not strong enough. I'm not cut out for it. And so I have um, an online membership community called the Brave Trauma Therapist Collective, where we come together to combat those messages and to support each other in um, identifying vicarious trauma for us, in talking about and, and really learning about effective and healthy ways to manage it, and also really celebrating our work and acknowledging the, yeah. the impact of, impact of post-traumatic growth and vicarious resilience, which happens when we see our clients get better, when we bear witness to people overcoming trauma, that fills our cups back up and we get to celebrate that together inside of the collective. Jenny, wow. will you do me a big favor? Would you write a book and Neil can ghostwrite it because you 
are brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and I, I actually have written a book. <laughs> oh, you have? Yeah. Um, it's called the PTSD Recovery Workbook. So oh, there you go. <laughs> it's written yeah. for well, clients um, uh -huh. and can be really helpful for people to use on their own. It can also be uh -huh. used with a therapist. Um, uh -huh. And I have a number of colleagues who have used it with their clients. I would love to write a book about the vicarious trauma stuff one day. So mm -hmm. I'll let you know, Neil, mm -hmm. when I get to that point. But I have done the PTSD <laughs> part so far. Okay. Awesome. And where well, can people you... find that and find you? Give us all your yeah. social media links yeah. and all that yeah. good stuff. Yeah. So they can find the book on Amazon. Just put in PTSD recovery workbook and it'll, it should come right up. Um, and then the best way to, to follow me is either on Instagram or TikTok, which is a whole new world. Um, but at brave providers, <laughs> um, and then I for any TikTok. helpers and healers that are listening, if you enjoy Facebook groups, I do have a free group called the brave vicarious trauma community, and it's available to anyone who's a helper or healer that wants to be surrounded by other people who do that kind of work and who want to talk about vicarious trauma, who want to have these conversations okay. because they know how healing it is. And so you can just search in Facebook, the brave vicarious trauma community that's my free facebook outside of the the paid membership so and the biggest and thing is finding the right therapist right is finding yes. someone yes. who Research. you feel comfortable with but also has mm -hmm. true training so one thing that mm -hmm. can happen is people will say they treat trauma but it's just like mm -hmm in their list of things on psychology today. And so I always mm -hmm. recommend, and I can share, I'll send you guys some links too of ways to find people okay. who are like legit trained in certain yeah. modalities, mm -hmm. sure. but find someone who's actually been trained in, in EMDR, actually been trained and in not a life coach. Yeah, not a life coach. Life coaches <laughs> have their place, but that. like, when yeah. we're treating trauma and PTSD, we have evidence-based yeah. treatments that work. Somatic experiencing is right. another great one. Um, but find people who are like actually trained in these things, not that just say they that they treat trauma. Um, because yeah. that's how you're going to be able to really experience that healing that is so possible and that I see all the time. Well, oh. Jenny, you have a great day. This is yeah. wonderful yeah. because you're going to give a lot of people hope. Okay. And we'll, we'll put a really link great. to your book. We'll put a link to your book also. We'll put all your links, uh, like, when this airs, like, in the description, so they can check this out one. everything they want. So. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> you have a fabulous well, day. Yeah, have a good day. Thanks. You guys, too. So nice okay, to meet you. Bye-bye. to seeing you again. Bye.